Freddy's home. You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. He wears a dirty brown hat. He's horribly burned. He has razors on his right hand. The bastard son of a hundred meters. They burned him to death in his boiler room. And they hid the remains. But he can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because mommy killed him. When I was alive, I might have been a little naughty. But after they killed me, I became something much, much worse. This is now playing's A Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective series. Welcome to Freddy 101. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Brock. Twisted, lonely souls. The worst of the criminally insane. We got special work to do here, you and me. We will be reviewing all Freddy's films from Wes Craven's original through 2010's hotly anticipated remake. Who is that? But beware. These discussions will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. You can find new episodes of this series released every week at nowplayingpodcast.com. Hey everyone, this is Brock, and I'm here with some bonus content for our Nightmare on Elm Street series. About halfway through recording the Nightmare on Elm Street series, we found out about a new documentary called Never Sleep Again, which covered the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And Arnie recently had a chance to sit down with Nancy herself, Heather Langenkamp, to talk about Never Sleep Again, and also her role in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. So sit back and enjoy this bonus interview of Arnie talking to Heather. And now joining us is Heather Langenkamp, Nancy from the Nightmare on Elm Street films, an executive producer, narrator, and guest on Never Sleep Again. Welcome. Thank you very much, Arnie. So how did you come upon the Never Sleep Again project? Well, I've had a, a really great working relationship with Tommy Hudson for, for gosh, about 10 years now, and we've always wanted to do a project together, and it made a lot of sense to do the anniversary project for uh, for Nightmare on Elm Street, because we are reaching the 25th anniversary of this important, you know, movie, and we started working together, and then um, he had also been involved with Dan Farron's on His Name Was Jason, so it made a lot of sense for us all to team up together and they generously um, offered me this position as executive producer and I told them how much I wanted to narrate and be part of it in a, in a, as meaningful a way as I, as I could be. And so we started the ball rolling. We got some interviews with people and as we built our momentum, it just was just astounding at how many people wanted to be involved in. And in the end, as you know, we had over a hundred people, you know, uh, asked to be interviewed or accepted our invitation. And I did everything I could to make sure that we, you know, just could get Wes and Robert and Bob Shea and all the people that I knew personally who I knew would help us out. In many cases with horror films especially, it seems like the actors and actresses want to distance themselves from the role. But here you were actively wanting to go back and be further associated with Nightmare and to be a driving force behind the documentary? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question, actually. I mean, I think there was a time in my life when I did try to distance myself. I, it, it, there was a little bit of a stigma still associated with these types of movies when I was a young actor. But, you know, I do a lot of traveling and I meet a lot of fans. And what's really come crystal clear to me is how beloved this movie is to, you know, generations now of people and how much they love Freddy Krueger and what an icon he's become in American culture. So, you know, I really love kind of this sociological, historical aspect of this project because it's really laid down on video. Um, just the the breadth of this phenomenon and all the really intelligent and very dedicated people who made the movies come to life. You said that you were really interested in being the narrator of this. What drew you to the role of narration? Well, one is that I'd never had an opportunity to do it before, and I and I really enjoy, you know, I, I just feel like I want to do everything before I die. You know, it's one of those, you know, you just, I was really curious more than anything to see if I could have the, you know, it, it takes a lot of voice control and a lot of, uh, you have to adopt this kind of persona as the narrator who has this omniscient viewpoint. And so I thought I'd like to try it. And, uh, I think that they figured they could kill two birds with one stone by letting me do it. <laughs> What I found interesting when watching this is you're the narrator and executive producer, but then you're also one of the interview subjects. How did that work for you being, you know, the driving force and also one of the subjects? Were you able to exert more control over your questions or? Well, no, as a matter of fact, I mean, I think they always re uh, remained extremely um, objective about my role and, and I never felt that it was my job to exert any control at all. Uh, basically, what I would do is I would say to them, you know, please, anything I can do to help you, just call me and I'll be happy to do it. So once, you know, once in a while they'd call and say, Heather, we really need you to do this or make this phone call. And, and I would happily, you know, do my job. But I always considered myself subordinate to these producers who, I mean, they are so knowledgeable about Nightmare on Elm Street. They know so much more than I do, and I was in the movies. I mean, they'll tell me about details of our wardrobe or, or, or lines that we said or places that we went that I had forgotten because, you know, my memories are, are just of a different kind. And so they're really students of these films. And um, so it finally came time for my interview, and frankly, I really felt like I did not contribute much in the way of an interview. <laughs> After I see it, I'm thinking I'm so boring compared to all of our other guests who have these really exciting and very interesting tales to tell. I think because I was so young and pretty much overwhelmed by my by my job as you know, just having to learn my lines and and do what was expected of me, my memory is very um, selective and and pretty spotty. I have to admit. I think. I was very nervous and, and, and overtired, too. And I feel kind of like a new mother, like you never can remember anything about the birth of your child because you were just so exhausted. Um, it's kind of how I feel about Nightmare One. So I, I really did try to dig deep, but I don't think I did as well as my other you know, as the other guests. I really feel like I'm kind of like a dead weight there. So you said that part of it was making phone calls. Who are some of the people you helped get involved and be interviewed for the project? 
Well, you know, it was really obvious that we had to have Robert England. And, um, you know, Robert is, you know, he's a prominent actor. And so he has quite a few layers of, of people around him in order to get a hold of him. Like many actors, you know, they have managers and agents. And, you know, he has a wife who is actually very, you know, is a very good friend of mine. So when um, Tommy and Dan and Andrew were having a hard time reaching him. You know, they called me and asked me what I could do. And, you know, it's just very hard to get someone to commit to doing something like this when they have a very busy work schedule and travel schedule like Robert does. But, um, so that was an example of, I think my first score was getting Robert and getting him there. And he gave a five hour interview, I believe really in, in depth. And as you can tell from the documentary, I mean, he really is a through line, you know, no other actor of any project that I know of has been in eight movies in a franchise. So his, the continuity of his experience and knowledge is was it actually to me is my favorite part of the DVD is is seeing the evolution of Robert England as an actor and as this, like I said, beloved you know character that America has come to really love. And and then um, of course I. I told Wes Craven how important this project was for him to participate in. I think he gets interviewed all the time, and I don't know if he always feels like they all, you know, they're necessarily, you know, important to participate in. But um, I really felt like he was very generous by giving us um, quite a long interview. But um, I kind of had to convince him a little bit that we weren't going to take advantage of his time. And, and he, you know, he's really, he also, too, is just this really busy man. And then um, the final person that I, I really, I feel really excited that we were able to get. And now that the DVD is finished, I mean, we couldn't have made the same DVD unless he had participated. And that was Bob Shea. And he actually spends time in New York. So, um there was a lot of scheduling conflicts and he was probably one of our last interviews, but, um, you know, you have to tell them that, you know, you have to tell them all the people that have already participated in and how important it is. And, and you don't even know what the final product is going to look like, but you have to assure these folks that you're not going to, um, you know, not, you know, not just spend all your blood, sweat and tears and making it the best that it can be. And I'm hoping that, you know, they're proud of the the final product because I just think it's terrific. Oh, I agree. I, I especially like you say with Bob Shea. You know, for the people who watch the movies, they may not even recognize his cameos. But in watching the documentary, his influence on the entire series is so enormous. So, and you know, and he's such a he, he's so proud of the um, just you know it's the American success story. You know, of really working hard for something starting with nothing, building it up to this great, you know, New Line Cinema became quite a powerful company before it was um, bought out by Ted Turner and then by Warner Brothers. So, you know, he really had taken it from the trunk of his car to a a corporation with 650 employees. And, you know, he did that over the stretch of maybe, you know, 18 years, 15 years, all on the back of Nightmare on Elm Street. So, you know, in the business world of Hollywood, I just think that's an, a very compelling story that I don't think we knew we were going to tell that story when we started. That's the way documentaries are. The the footage kind of inspires the story. And, and so it's very clear after we got all those interviews from Sarah Risher as well, who was also his co-producer, um, that this was actually a, a very important 
part of the whole uh, franchise history that, you know, we felt, we just felt really lucky to be able to tell that story. You were, of course, a part of three of the eight films covered in the documentary. Of the other five, what do you think of those various installments and the way Freddie became more comical in the later years? Well, I think, you know, once something in our culture becomes kind of branded, it it becomes more of a two-dimensional thing rather than this three-dimensional thing which I believe, you know, Freddy Krueger up through like the third movie, he, he 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 did have that sense of humor, and it was kind of nasty and dark. And after the third movie, I really feel like Freddy, you know, you know, the word franchise kind of really applied. I mean, he became a much more commercial figure, much more branded as Freddy, and and I don't think that people enjoyed his performances any less, but. I think that the, the the way the scripts were structured, they showed him a lot more. He became really the star of the show, and he became the one who everybody was really paying their money to see. And so they became kind of more traditional slasher films later on, I feel, than they were in the beginning when I think what Wes did was, uh, you know, quite different from the, um, you know, kind of the traditional formula slasher movies but i have to say the way that they you know i think that the strong female characters that freddie was always battling that was something that remained consistent and i think the actors you know i think they had such a wonderful crop of actors and 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 directors too that you know were always trying their hardest to make it something special i i never got the feeling that they were really just cranking out another nightmare on elm street especially after i saw the documentary i really felt like they they went through many many writers they really were looking for something that was going to catch everyone's imagination and and maybe they weren't successful in the box office but the earnestness and and I, I just got the feeling there was like this lack of cynicism about the way they approached their this baby of theirs, which was Nightmare on Elm Street. Bob Shea and Sarah Richard just really were, um, they really tried hard to make a good film. And, you know, they tried to do it cheaply, too, which is a huge challenge. And, um, you know, you, and then they were lucky because they had Robert England, who was going to bring this consistency to Freddie that um, I think none of the other franchises have. And and you know, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of horror movies, frankly, at all. But I really do appreciate just all the work and and how difficult it is to make a good horror movie. I mean, it's really hard. If I can follow up on that, you said you're not a fan of horror movies at all, it, which is you know ironic given what you're known for and that you're working on this documentary. What is it that makes you not a fan? Well, you know, I mean, as a as a woman and an, an actor, I really, you know, I'm an extremely impressionable person. I mean, I'm very, um, you know, I I I keep myself in a state where things can make big impressions on me, and I can have certain reactions, and that I I that I you know I think a, a good actor is always kind of never um, hardening themselves to reality. I mean, you always want to be looking at it and really and really experiencing the, you know, the joy, the anguish, the disappointment, whatever it is, you want to like kind of wallow in those feelings because that's where you get your performances from later on. And you, you know, you kind of really understand that about yourself. And as I think that horror movies actually just disturb me too much. I, 
I I don't like seeing violent images of any kind of violence against any people. And um, I don't like it on the news. I don't like it in a horror movie. I don't like it in a book. I don't. So I, I don't like pay money to go see them in general. There's a few exceptions, but, you know, in general, I think I just, I'd rather not just fill my brain up with those kinds of um, images. And I'm kind of weird, you know, in America, and especially because I'm in these movies. But I have to say is that now that, you know, I do work with my husband and we do make makeup effects for horror movies that are often really bloody and disgusting, for some reason, because it involves so much artistry, I, lo- I never look at, at like what we're really doing. I'm just looking at it as an art object. And and when it's all put together on screen and you have the actor wearing the makeup and you have the music and you have the blood, I just, it becomes something else. And, and it's not something that I really enjoy as much as, you know, when I'm planning it and organizing everything to get that ready. And uh, it's weird and ironic, but I just think I feel things too too intensely. Well, that's not a bad thing, like you say, either for an actress or just a person. Yeah, I mean, I hope that people like become more. I think people need to be really aware of their feelings and um, and at the excitement that a horror movie produces. You know, I hope it's not at the expense of desensitizing people to violence, because you know, I, I don't. I think we all need to take you know better care of each other in general. <laughs> to Go back to the documentary for a second. Uh, you said that you were working on this for the 25th anniversary of Nightmare on Elm Street, which was last year. And was it serendipity that the Platinum Dunes remake came out that was able to allow for some synergy to drive this documentary? Or was it also planned? You knew that was in the works and you wanted to tie in. Yeah, I mean, the whisperings of that remake had been going on for several years. And I did not know that it was going to dovetail so perfectly. But I'm sure that our producers really, um, you know, when they heard that the movie was going to be released in the spring of 2010, I'm sure that it made them happy that we were able to meet deadlines that would get us to that same kind of release date. And, um, I mean, I think it was obviously a conscious choice to release at that time. But if even if Platinum didn't, hadn't come out with the new Nightmare movie, we would have still, you know, gone full steam ahead with our project. It was it was kind of awkward, actually, because I always got the feeling like we were, um, I mean, not trying to trump them, but, you know, by taking advantage of all of this publicity that they had, you know, were buying, marketing their film, I just felt like it was, you know, it, it made the release of our documentary actually... I think a little bit easier and people had it on their brain and that there was lots of interest in the old movies at this exact same time. So, um, you know, I think it was the, our producers, I think Dan Farrens especially was, is just really a smart guy. And with all of that publicity and everything, I know you had just a huge launch party in Los Angeles with a number of the actors there and the producers of the documentary. What was that experience like for you, seeing all of them together at once? Well, I mean, it's amazing how many people came to that event. And everyone who came, you know, was able to get this poster signed. And so by the time I got it, I was kind of at the end of the line. Um, I mean, there were, you know, 50, 60 signatures on these posters. And I just think of how excited those 
fans are that they have this incredible, you know, this piece of art that's covered with, you know, their favorite people's uh, signatures. But the actors, I think now that horror has really taken its place in American film history as this really important genre that everybody loves, now all the actors are really happy. Like you were talking about distancing. I think everybody's kind of thrown that idea out the window and everybody really is now really happy to look back and, and realize that they were part of this really awesome, um, you know, film franchise. So everybody was very excited. And uh, the fans had come, some people came from England to be at this event. It was just amazing. So it was, it was a, a shocking surprise to see how many people came. And that was about a week after the release of the new film. Have you have you seen the remake? I have not seen it. And uh, I think I'll wait a little while. I get asked about it all the time. And I I kind of, um, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, say anything that might like change people's opinions of going to see the movie or anything like that. I think everybody loves Freddy and they should enjoy him for as long as possible and, and, my opinion, like I said, since I'm not a huge fan of horror movies, I don't know if I would even like it, actually. <laughs> so I don't want to put myself in a position where I might have to, you know, say something that, you know, I don't know. I might not sound like a huge, you know, nightmare fan. Now, if I can, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about Wes Craven's new nightmare, because we okay. talked about that on the show before. And we we had some questions, and it's great that I get the chance to talk to you because we, we were really wondering about your relationship with that movie because it in that one you play a fictionalized version of yourself, and we thought that it was really very brave to allow Wes Craven such access to your life and, you know, being able to fictionalize it, but, you know, it, it in many ways portrayed you somewhat negatively as coming from, you know, they say that you come from mental insanity and your child's being taken away from you. What made you think that you wanted to open up that much of yourself for the Nightmare franchise? Well, I think, you know, when Wes Craven calls you and, and tells you that he's created a new script with, with you at the center, I mean, first of all, I mean, I was incredibly flattered that he wanted to continue the, you know, the Nancy saga of Nightmare Elm Street. I mean, the fact that he wanted to bring that character back and, and have another battle with Freddy, that was probably my first impression was, you know, I can't believe that this is happening to me. I mean, this is such good fortune and, and I'm really, I'm really, I'm flattered, you know, in a way that was very sincere. And, um, and then I looked at the storyline and the, the first, um, the first script that I read in many ways, it was, it was much, it had a much more imaginative kind of feel to it. It didn't feel like it was so real to to me. And it made it a little easier because it, there was so much more of a fantastical qu quality to it or fantastic quality to it that it was more like I was lending just my name. And, um, I mean, she was an actor and she had a husband who was, you know, in, in the movie business and they had a son, which was all bi biographically correct. But I felt like it was just really, he had assigned a name to that character in order to achieve this goal of his to bring Freddie into the real world. And so I really appreciated how ingenious his idea was. But then as the script kind of changed, as we got more ready for shooting, 
it just became a little bit more like me in, in some ways. And, and, and it did make me uncomfortable in some ways. I never wanted anyone in my own real life family to feel like we were taking advantage of them. And so that thing that you mentioned about the insanity in, in the script originally, it talked about how my mother was in an insane asylum, like my real mother. And I just, I told Wes and we actually, you know, kind of were at an impasse over this for a while. I, I just said, I don't know. I do not feel comfortable saying that line. I cannot, as Heather Langenkamp say the line, you know, my mother is in an insane asylum or an institution or whatever the line was, because people will think I'm talking about my real mother, you know, because I'm Heather Langenkamp and maybe only one person might think that, but that's one too many. And I don't want to insult my mother in that way or make her feel uncomfortable. And, and I don't think that Wes agreed with me for a long time. And then finally the day came when we had to shoot that scene and I reminded him of my concerns and I was very, I was actually kind of upset with Wes because I thought that he should have taken care of it and rewritten the, the speech. I thought he should have rewritten it so that I could have had pages in front of me where I wasn't saying that, you know, and, but he didn't, you know, he's super busy and didn't have time to rewrite this speech. So I told him I'm, I was going to change it. And, and, you know, he didn't, he didn't say, no, don't change it. He just said, okay. So when I'm sitting with John Saxon at the playground and I say that line, I remember I, it probably took us like 20 takes because I could never really spit it out in the way that it sounded good because he hadn't written it for me. So I was kind of trying to ad lib it. And that's always tough on the set. And, when you're thinking of other things. So I'm not really happy with the way that that scene turned out in some ways, because I feel like I let Wes down by not, you know, thinking of something more, you know, that sounded better, but that's a good example of how that was very difficult to negotiate that whole reality versus imaginary Heather Langenkamp. And in retrospect, I mean, of all the movies, I think that one is the most interesting in terms of structure and the story that it tells. I think that story is an amazing um, modern interpretation of, of, of film, like, you know, just film structure, like how we bring it into this modern world. And we, we have a strange viewpoint. And my character is not as noble as Nancy Thompson, which is a good thing because, you know, every every person struggles with, you know, their imperfections. And, and I think that's what Wes wanted everyone to see is that um, Nancy Thompson is a fictional character who could fight Freddy Krueger. Heather Langenkamp is a real person who's not going to have as easy a time of it. And, um, and I think, you know, we tried to bring that to the screen and and I, I really love the movie. It's one of my, I mean, I have to say besides the first one, it's my second favorite. And one other question, again, about the meta reality there is during the funeral scene, there's a lot of Elm Street alumni with cameos. And I was wondering, you know, because you were on the TV show, Just the Ten of Us, which also had Brooke Thice, who was in Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Mm-hmm. Was she intentionally not included due to the Just the Ten of Us connection? or No, no. I mean, they wanted people who, um, you know, frankly, Wes really distances himself from all the other movies except for one and seven. Th- those are not his 
so the the people that are in that scene were in the first movie, I think, and I I don't believe there's many people from any of the other ones. I, I guess the one who threw me was Tuesday Night being in that scene because yeah, she was no, in I, I, you know what? I'm not sure how she. Um, I think they kind of put out feelers to see who is available and who would who would be do who would be willing to do it, but um, I know just knowing knowing Wes that he probably. Um, was more comfortable having people from the first movie in it, and maybe Tuesday was really wanting to be in it, and so that's why they they allowed her to come in. But I do think they wanted. I, I mean, we recognize that that franchise exists. All other other six movies have been made, so um, you know the producers really w- were instrumental in making that funeral scene kind of populated. I think I think that was kind of their job to do that. And now. Uh, on a future project of yours, on disc two of the Never Sleep Again, there's a promo for I Am Nancy. What can you tell us about that? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I do a lot of traveling to go to conventions. And um, I last year decided um, after I had been working particularly hard on um, – my husband and I were doing a movie called The Cabin in the Woods by uh, Drew Goddard is directing that, directed that. And we had just been working our fingers to the bone and it was coming to an end. And I looked at my sister-in-law who, you know, we were both um, coordinators on the, on the makeup effects. And I said, um, I'm going to call Wes Craven and see um, if, I, I forget what it was for. It was just for a favor. And I call his office, and the secretary didn't know my name, didn't know Heather Langenkamp, didn't know how to spell my name, didn't know that I was a friend of Wes's. And and it was just one of those funny moments where you expect someone to know your name, and they don't. And at Wes Craven's office, I just kind of figured that they would know who Heather Langenkamp was. So I hung up the phone and... um, had a little chuckle. I was just kind of laughing like, wow, what is it going to take? You know? And my sister-in-law just said, I just can't believe that. You know, you should have told that secretary to go over to Wes Craven's bookshelf and look on that top shelf and see that movie called Nightmare on Elm Street and pull down that DVD and look on the front cover and you'll see someone's name, Heather Langenkamp and tell her that's how she spells it. And, um, so I said, oh, you're so funny. I go, that's just not the way the world works, Arlene. And uh, she said, well, it should. <laughs> and um, she's like, you're famous, and you should just know that people should know your name, especially if they work for Wes Craven. And I said, I guess so. And and so then the next day she came into the office, and she was just full of this, just this, like, indignation. <laughs> and uh, she said, that's it. We're making a documentary about how you don't get any respect. And it's all, it's going to be about Freddie and we're going to have to tell everyone how important Nancy Thompson was. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to a convention in two weeks. We'll bring a cameraman and we'll just start doing some interviews. So now it's a year later and we have about a hundred hours of footage. We have interviews with an incredible interview with Wes Craven, also his, his daughter, Jessica and Robert England, all these people, plus Fans from London, from Germany, from Connecticut, from Los Angeles, from, gosh, so many places. And uh, we're putting it together. And, and so what that sneak preview is, it kind of sets the tone and how, I mean, I'm really making fun of myself, but I'm also talking about how important Nancy Thompson is to other people. And when you really 
ask people about Nightmare on Elm Street, they always mention Freddie first. And um, But then if you ask them about Nancy, I've discovered that she was actually quite an inspiration to a lot of girls, but also a lot of men and, you know, young boys who see her as this kind of symbol of fighting back and symbol of strength and symbol of, you know, battling your fears. So in the end, I mean, by the end of my documentary, I really hope people um, not only appreciate Nancy Thompson and Wes Craven's incredible characterization of her, but, but also see that horror movies really do provide this little extra bit of courage to people who, you know, have, it's their way of dealing with their fears. And I I just love that part about um, horror movies. I'm not, I'm not one of those who, like I said, I just, I, I don't actually enjoy them, but for the people who do, I just have gotten such a kick out of interviewing them and finding out like exactly why, you know, why they sit there and just love to scream and, and love to be scared and, and love to watch Freddy Krueger. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. I'm I'm trying to make it as funny and enjoyable as possible so that, you know, it's it doesn't seem like this, you know, kind of pompous look back on on this character that I played. It really, you know, it, it's it's hopefully going to be something people walk away feeling really happy about. And when do you expect to release that? Well, our final we're doing our final cut right now, and and I'm promised it's going to be done July fifteenth, and uh, then we'll probably spend a little bit of time um, doing some, you know, the music, and that takes a little bit of time. But I'm really hoping that um, I'm going to enter it in some film festivals this fall. I think we're going to do it the film festival route and really take it to some uh, out of the way places, and then see if you know perhaps there'll be somebody who would want to. Um, distribute this movie but in general it's kind of a love letter to my fans who've been so supportive over these years well i look forward to seeing that and heather thank you for taking the time to talk with us i know that our listeners really appreciate it well thank you arnie it's been my pleasure and good luck with your podcast and i'll tune in for sure our thanks goes to heather and you can go to elmstreetlegacy.com to get the dvd you can also become a fan of the i am nancy documentary on facebook to get the latest on that project. Now, we're not going to be doing a regular now-playing podcast review of Never Sleep Again, yet you can read our full review of Never Sleep Again in the Now Playing forums, which can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. But wait! There's more! (laughs) See, folks, we don't just waste your time with one bonus content. We're going to give you more. As a second part of this podcast, we are including a never-before-released interview that Arnie and Jacob did with Robert Englund. This interview was in the summer of 2008, so the remake was still a ways off. But as you will hear, it was quite the fun interview. We are here with Robert England. Hello, sir. Hello. And you've got quite a few projects on the radar these days. Well, there's one, there's one that's right behind me here, which is uh, uh, Zombie Strippers. But I, I actually have two uh, horror comedies coming out Uh uh, Jack Roach Monster Slayer, which is sort of a horror farce, uh, and uh, Zombie Strippers with the, the lovely Jenna Jameson, which is like, I'm calling a horror sex comedy. Uh, and, but who could say no to a, a movie called Zombie Strippers, right? I mean, that, that, I mean, every every horror actor needs that on his resume, I think. 
Well, you certainly have quite the resume, and now you've got zombie strippers cherry on the top there. Well, well I, and you know, I I couldn't say no to it, and then I met Jay Lee, the uh, creator, director, gaffer, cameraman. Uh, you know, he did everything. He's a jack of all trades, and and Jay had this great sensibility of of kind of. Homemade and low budget, and and zombies and strippers, and and, and kind of a, a political statement about the administration, and we, we we also played around with some intellectual theater references, but we also, you know, did pratfalls and slipped in guts, and and uh, it was fun for me. I got to run around and just have fun and and, and do shtick, but. Jenna and, and, and Roxy Saint, uh, Jenna Jameson and Roxy Saint, the two stars, they were the ones that had to go through all of the makeup hell on this one. So, uh, you know, I was sitting in the uh, in the in the sort of green room across the hall in the old warehouse we were working in in downtown Los Angeles, and I'd look across, nursing my dunking my donut and my coffee, you know, and I'm I'm all spoiled, and there'd be poor Jenna if she wasn't dancing, if she wasn't acting, if she wasn't running around, you know, getting shot at or doing an action sequence, they would put her in this sort of like reclining uh, barber's chair and they would s slowly deteriorate her because she is, after all, a zombie stripper. And, and as, as time goes by in the chronology of the movie and the continuity of the movie, she's disintegrating before your very eyes, you know. And every time I look, they drag poor Jenna back in this room and, and she would, they would put more and more goop on her and makeup and contact lenses and rot her teeth and everything and, and and she was such a trooper you know she because she was you know also they low budget and were shooting fast and down and dirty and they get you in that all that makeup they want to you know they want to get their money's worth and get as much of you on film as they can but she was great and and, and the other thing was that all the girls are scantily clad <laughs> and uh, but they're all in those stripper high heels you know those stiletto heels and that was like really kind of like i was it was a even though it was sort of a sexually charged atmosphere on the set with all these lovely ladies, you, I was more worried about them because I was so worried about a sprained ankle or stepping on one of these delicate little foots in these high heels, you know, with all the cables and the wires and the fake blood on the on the on the ground that. Uh, uh, we, we was really we were kind of protecting them more than we were leering at them. And did you get a good laugh, being that you weren't in the makeup chair for once? And yeah, I mean it was really relaxing. Although at the end of the movie, I do get lap danced to death. I think that's a <laughs> cinematic first. <laughs> I have a question about you're doing the voice of the Vulture for Spectacular Spider-Man. How do you get in the mindset to do the voice for this like? 80-year-old guy that dresses up as a bird. I mean, is that tough? Do you method act? Do you dress, fly around the... Well, you know, here's the thing about the vulture. I have not completed my work yet on the vulture. I have been doing the Riddler on the new Batman. And I I tend to squawk him a bit, but most of my work so far has been getting my ass kicked midair <laughs> by Spidey. And I'm screaming one or two words as I fly through the air and splat against the side of a skyscraper. So I really haven't done a lot of a lot of uh, dialogue. But I do bear in mind that he's raspy and bird-like, and I kind of see that in my mind's eye. And I can so I can use my own nasality because I have a natural nasality, and I, I use that a little bit where I would hide that if I was doing, you know, a doctor, or if I was doing a bank president, or if I was doing someone very elegant. But with with, with, with the vulture, it, I, I like it because it's a beak. That nose is a beak, you know, and so it, it's, it's kind of up here. But I, I'm not. I, I was. I'm thinking a little more Peter Laurie than anything. And you know, it's weird because you go, you walk in there, and the great Peter McNichols is doing, uh, McNichol is doing Doc Ock, you know. And so when when somebody else gets up before you, 
and, and lays down a voice. You can't go near his voice. And, and we work with an awful lot of great, just pure voice actors, too, on that show. And they come in, and sometimes they do a voice that's so great. So you want to have your own personality in there a bit. Uh, the uh, Riddler's much more, uh, he gets a little more hysterical. He loses control. He, he's, he's very um, methodical, but then he goes, he, he, can, get, he can get angry and, 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 and spin out a little quicker. But most of my work so far of the Vulture has just been screaming. <laughs> How did you get involved with voice acting? Because like you said, there are so many voice actors and it's such a tight-knit group. Well, you know, unfortunately, and this is, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but I work with some big stars that are doing voiceovers. But the, when the voice actors come in to do the smaller roles now, because they, they use the name actors for the big parts, now that doesn't mean that David or Clancy Brown aren't doing great voice work, but but those voice actors are brilliant. And I love I love it. It's like like the old Mel Blanc, you know, Bugs Bunny thing. I just wish they were doing all the parts, you know. Um, and I've seen some big, you know, uh, animated movies recently, and, and sometimes I've seen great voice work. Ellen DeGeneres, obviously, and Nemo was phenomenal. And I've seen some other great, great voice work, but there's been some I didn't even know why they hired the actors, and they're not the kind of actors that fill seats anyway. And it was a little curious to me. I, I kind of wish that some of the, there'd be a little bit of a return to those, those voice actors, because some of those guys are so brilliant, and I get to work with them. What, how I got into it was, and this, I've been doing it for a long time, I... I, I narrated a series of uh, documentaries on, on the great horror icons, on, on, on Bela Lugosi, on Boris Karloff, on Alfred Hitchcock, uh, and some other people for uh, using the Universal Archives. And then I also narrated a very famous John Milius film called Big Wednesday. And I pinched my nose and I did my surfer accent. But now that movie's become a, a, a quite a major cult classic and has anniversary screenings and everything and, and is very well re- received around the world. So I had done it earlier on, and then I, I, I was doing, you know, auditions, and my agency has a really good voice department, so I, I, you know, I go in. The last audition I had was for Alexis, I think, and I, I think Patricia Clarkson got the part. <laughs> you know, so you just go in, it's a, it's a crap shoot, you know, it's, it's a roll of the dice, it's, it's a numbers game, because that they don't re- they think they know what they want, but then they'll just hear a voice and they say that's the voice for this product or something. But but it's great fun because you can just show up, you know, in your pajamas. I I, I, I remember I was doing one show and it was like Susan Sullivan. Oh, I do Justice League, and it was like Susan Sullivan and and uh, uh, it was like half the cast from Dharma and Greg were in there, you know, in their in their t-shirts and stuff and. And again, like I mentioned Peter McNichol and Clancy Brown. But I was walking to work one day a couple of years ago. It was like two years ago. And hot day in the valley at the uh, Warner Brothers animation thing. And I walked in the door and Ron Perlman walked out. So Freddy Krueger was going to work. And, and Hellboy had just rapped on his voiceover work because Ron's got a great voice. And it's fun to see everybody, you know, and sit around, you know. And and, uh, and, and, and you can, the directors can be real dirty and profane because it, that, none of their stuff's going to be recorded. So, and, and you work real fast and you're really kind of on your toes. Um, sometimes it may be a little too fast, but uh, that's, that's the nature uh, of the work. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I heard a rumor that you originally tried out for the role of Luke Skywalker, and you no, this, refer- this, <laughs> this, this, this is you guys got to get off the fucking internet. You know, I don't know what to tell you guys. You got to get off the internet. Um, Mark Hamill was sort of a surrogate roommate of mine in the seventies. He would would come. He was shooting a series at the CBS studios, and I lived right across the street with my girlfriend. We were all great old friends. And after he was done, or before he got that job, we would all hang around at my apartment, at a cool apartment, and we would watch a late afternoon television, 
old movies and stuff, and we would, you know, call our agents and wait for our agents to call us regarding our callbacks and things. And Mark was like the funniest guy. In the, I mean, he's an amazingly funny guy. So I went through the, the whole uh, Star Wars experience with him. He was auditioning and stuff. While he was, you know, uh, up for Star Wars, or, or, or maybe he'd already had Star Wars, um, I was called in for Apocalypse Now as the surfer in Apocalypse Now. I think the part Joe Bottoms played. And I was uh, uh, across the hall, and I wore like a khaki military shirt. And I was big then, you know, I was muscly because I was still surfing a lot, and I had my full head of long blonde hair, and I was real tan, and I had an old faded green army t-shirt on underneath, and I had a pair of tight jeans on and, 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 and uh, work boots, and they didn't think I was right for the surfer, and I wanted to be up for the Frederick Forrest role, the saucier. You know, the guy that goes, fucking tiger, you know, in Apocalypse Now. And, uh, and and they didn't think I was old enough for that part. And they thought I was too old for the surfer. But then they said, but we want you, somebody across the hall would like to see you. So I went across the hall where they were casting Star Wars. And they looked at me for a brief moment for Han Solo because of the way I was dressed. But I looked way too young to call Mark Hamill kid then. We were we looked about the same age then. I mean, Mark's really got a baby face, but... I didn't. I, I wasn't the kind of look that would call him kid, like Harrison did. At any rate, that's the true story. I think I've said on a number of uh, of occasions. You know, I was sort of there when Mark got Luke Skywalker, and and I was there, and Mark was hanging out with me when he got back from shooting Star Wars. And Mark knew it was going to be the biggest thing in the world because Mark is a fan. He's a fanboy. He's got letters to the editor in Famous Monsters magazine from when he was a child, an army brat in the military. Uh, in Japan and consequently he sort of brought me back into this world and taught me to respect it even before Wes Craven and 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 because and, and Mark would talk about Forey Ackerman and and his favorite movies and we would watch you know the beast from 10,000 fathoms and things on TV you know while we're waiting for our agents to call so I've told these stories about how Mark kind of reintroduced me and made me respect you know the genre and how he got Luke Skywalker, and I think it got confused somewhere with bad reporting. I was never, ever up for Luke Skywalker or considered for the role. It was my pal Mark Hamill all the way, and uh, and he did a great job. And I'm just waiting for Mark to get a big, giant comedy, because he is one of the funniest men I've ever sat around with in my life. Final question. Uh, with the remake of Friday the 13th being done, does that mean that Freddy vs. Jason 2 is not going to be happening? I think that all of the uh, I, I think the ball is in the Michael Bay remake of the original Nightmare on Elm Street Court now at Warner Brothers, and I think that they're in good hands with Michael Bay. Uh, I, I like the idea of of how special effects uh, today's uh, technology and CGI and everything could be used to sort of exploit the dreamscape, the landscape of of the nightmares in, in, in the original Nightmare on Elm Street film. And I, I'm, I'm curious and looking forward to it. I hope that they reinterpret the film. I mean, that's the reason for remaking it, is to reinterpret it like some of the others have done. I mean, obviously you have to keep the same mythology, Freddy Krueger, you know, and he's, he's a janitor and he should have burn scars and things, but he shouldn't look like Robert England. I mean, he should be, this should be a new creation. And I'm hoping they'll go with that. All right. Thank you very much for Thank taking you. the time. Many thanks goes to Robert England. And again, you can find our full review of Never Sleep Again in the Now Playing forums, which can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Before we wrap this up, I got one more thing to tell you. If you're going to San Diego Comic-Con this year, you can actually meet in person, in the flesh, Arnie, Jacob, Marjorie, and Stuart. 
They'll be at the Yard House at 7 p.m. Saturday, July 24th at the bar. (laughs) Where else would they be? Upcoming this summer, we have a Predator retrospective series, and after that, a Philip K. Dick series, where we discuss movies like Blade Runner, Minority Report, and many more. Don't forget, you can join in the discussion for all these movies by following us on Twitter, where they're listed as Now Playing Pod, and also following us on Facebook. We often post informal thoughts about movies we watched that week. And you can also join in the discussion at the Now Playing Forums, where we have threads for every movie we've talked about in all of our retrospective series, which includes Star Trek, Terminator, Back to the Future, Friday the 13th, Halloween, and many, many more. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we hope we can bring you more bonus content like this in the very near future. Thank you for listening to our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective. But there's so much more to learn. Keep coming to NowPlayingPodcast.com every week to get the latest episode. Oh, yeah. Great to be back in business. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, stop by our forums to post your thoughts on this series. You can also find us on Twitter as NowPlayingPod or our NowPlayingPodcast fan page on Facebook. Links to the forums, Facebook, and Twitter pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Next time, don't, don't stay away so long. A Nightmare on Elm Street is copyright and trademarked New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers Entertainment. You think you've got what it takes. <laughs> now Playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers Entertainment, or Platinum Dunes. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010, all rights reserved. guys can the profanity was okay sometimes oh absolutely <laughs> all right <laughs>